You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be in John chapter 5. As you open up your Bibles to John chapter 5, we actually move into a new section in the Gospel of John. And as we move into this new section, I was reminded, as we think of the themes of John chapter 5, really till John chapter 10, of Martin Luther King Jr. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1929, and as many of you may know, he would be, he is, was the son of a reverend, would go on to be a Baptist minister, and really what we must know him by is an activist um, and one of the most inspirational figures of our century. We know that from 1954 until the time of his assassination in 1968, he would be the voice and face of the American civil rights movement, leading a, cam- a campaign of uh, a built upon a platform of equality, nonviolent action, and civil disobedience. He would confront a system that had been broken since its inception. And the way he would do it would be by pointing to our founding documents. He would, he would say this. He would say, when the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. Though written by those whose lives were not reflective of the truth heard here, MLK would confront our nation's hypocrisy and inconsistency to live as our founding documents call us to. But this direct confrontation would have consequences. Jailed up to 29 times, mockery, disdain, and a hatred and fear that would eventually lead to his murder. But the fear and reality of these things would not prevent his dream to see a country change, to see powers at B confronted, to know that they had taken these documents, these founding documents, and not lived them out. As we come to John chapter 5 today, we enter a confrontational section in the gospel, one that has Jesus, similar to Martin Luther, confronting the powers that be. There are false religions, and even along the way, superstitions, that Jesus will address. Jesus, in a much greater way than MLK, will point to the truth of God's word to show that in himself we can be made whole. In short, as we walk through the first 16 verses of chapter 5, we're going to ask the question, when Jesus confronts our superstitions and our false religions with his power and authority, Will we turn back to him? Will we turn to him? Or will we turn back to what we know? 
When Jesus confronts our superstitions and false religions of his power and authority, will we turn to him or back to what we know? So let's read John chapter 5, verse 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Besta, Besetta, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you give us ears to hear what you were saying, that I would decrease, that Christ would increase. Amen. So we've turned a corner in the ministry of Jesus, the Gospel of John. The previous few chapters had us uh, had Jesus work through some pointed conversations with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, directing them to the new birth by the Holy Spirit, as well as the living waters which, once drunk, will allow the people of God to worship him in spirit and truth. We've also seen two signs or specific miracles set aside by John the uh, Apostle to demonstrate Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who's come to take away the sins of the world. And so we come to chapter 5, and some of that will still be here, but this begins what's known as the festival cycle, spanning from 5 to 10, where we will see Jesus, during the festivals throughout the year, work his ministry, confront Jewish authorities. We're going to see an escalation between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, one that we know leads to his death. But again, that begins right here in chapter 5, the first 16 verses, where we will see the third sign of the seven in the Gospel of John pointing to Jesus' identity as well as a confrontation of Jesus and the religious authorities. An important question is being asked, not just of the man we're going to meet, not just of the Jewish authorities we're going to see, but of us. That when Jesus confronts our superstitions and false religions with his power and authority, will we turn to him or go back to what we know? We're going to approach the text in three different points. First, thinking of verses 1 to 5, 
38 years worth of suffering. Second, verses 6 to 10, be made whole, especially on the Sabbath. And then third, verses 11 to 15, sin no more, choose Jesus. So let's look at verses 1 to 5, 38 years worth of suffering. After this, verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So after some time, unknown to us, the official son has been healed, if you remember, at the end of chapter 4. Jesus heads up to Jerusalem during one of the feasts. Uh, people try to speculate which one of the feasts uh, this is, and for good reason. Well, you'll find, if, as you read the Gospel of John, is there's often a thematic uh, uh, correlation between what Jesus is doing and the festival going on. But without the specific feast given to us, we should probably just assume it's irrelevant to what's about to happen. Let's look at verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called uh, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. In Jerusalem, there, there's an area set aside with two pools for those who were sick. It had five covered porches with walkways to uh, protect those from the elements, from the sun and from the rain that could come. Perfect for invalids who otherwise would be exposed to these kinds of things. Right now, if you were to try to find this, it would probably be below St. Anne's Monastery. These pools were supposedly as large as football fields and claimed to be 20 feet deep, which doesn't make much sense because if you're an invalid, you jump into a 20-foot or you put into a 20-foot deep pool, you may not come back up. But these porticos, uh, like public baths in the ancient world, were open to the public. Anybody could come, and they were gathering places for beggars and for others. And we see that's the case in verse 3. A multitude of the sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the hurting. They've gathered, and they're not just here for shame or protection, they're here for healing. Now, if you look at me at verse 4, you'll notice there is no verse 4. If it did exist, it would say something like this. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed whatever disease he had. So, growing up, that would have been maybe in the Bible you read. This passage probably sounds familiar to some of you because it was something that you would have read or even heard. But as they found some of the earlier manuscripts, they also realized that this passage, verse 3b, verse 4, wasn't in the original. It wasn't in the original manuscripts that were written of the Gospel of John, but was then added later. It's not original to the Word of God. But though this passage, verse 3b and 4, is not the inspired word of God, it does make sense of why you see so many people, particularly the sick, here, making their way to this location. Bethsaida means house of mercy. And there, there was this ongoing belief, a superstition, and even a tradition, that when the waters were stirred, they, they were infused with healing properties. 
that, that perhaps an angel of the Lord was stirring up the waters, and in those moments, well, first come, first serve. If you can make your way to the waters first in those moments, you could be healed. And with the abundance of evidence of pagan religions happening around this time, the ideas of uh, healing shrines of water, this is not a fetched idea, even for a people who supposedly only worshipped a monotheistic God, a people who believed in Yahweh. It's not shocking that they would have these kinds of superstitions and beliefs infused with their own religion. That instead of going to God, one would go to the waters for healing. That this belief tried to impersonalize God. And I hope we can see that, how this kind of belief and superstition, rooted in a good desire to be made whole, has made God to be an impersonal force that they were trying to tap into, that they might receive something they want or need. That these pools and this thinking had created a culture and a people not desperate for God, but for his power. But I don't think we should look down at them. How often have we cried out, not for God's presence, but for his power? For him to specifically work a need in our life, in our desperation. And it isn't wrong to do that. When we are hurting, when we're going through challenges, we should go to God. We, we should seek his work in our life. But we should be wary and careful about anything that treats God as separate from his power. That he's a personal God who works personally in our lives, with us, and in his world. But you can't contain God's power in a bottle and open it up anytime you need something. But then we meet our man. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And so we read that among the multitudes, there was one that we're going to meet. A man who's been broken, who's been likely paralyzed for 38 years. Right? Again, we, we assume this because of his response to verse 7 where he talks about not having someone to bring him to the pool. This probably indicates that he was either paralyzed or extremely weak, being unable to get to the waters on his own. This was a man who had suffered longer than many who would live during this time in history. A man weak and all but helpless for nearly four decades. Verses 3 and 5 are pretty sobering. Right, think about this. Jesus, God in the flesh, is walking on the earth, and yet we read of multitudes who are desperately sick. A man who's been paralyzed or too weak to walk for almost 40 years. Often people will look at the dire state of our world and see those who seem to needlessly suffer and wonder, how could God allow this? But often we ask this question without ever looking in the mirror and asking how we, as a people, have contributed to our world's brokenness, both in our own personal sin, but also because of God's judgment of the sinless world. We don't want to pretend, as we see in the Old Testament, that suffering in this world can't be attributed to God's righteous judgment because of what we do. But there is a ripple effect because of sin simply existing, a poison that infects and affects everything right down to a molecular level. That it messes up our brain chemistry. It's the source of sickness and death. 
Sin is ugly in its effect, and it's worth mourning over. But God is not ignoring the pain of this world. Psalm 56, 8 reminds us that God keeps our tears in a bottle. That he's not looking away from us in the pain that we experience. He doesn't find joy in the suffering of his creation. And though Jesus won't immediately heal every person at this pool, his mission brings a greater solution to their sickness. An eternal hope that brings physical and spiritual renewal. Jesus' compassion is for the hurting. We'll see him demonstrate that as he calls the sick man to get up, especially on the Sabbath. So let's look at verses 6 to 10. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? In the crowd of many, Jesus saw one. Whether finding out from somebody or through his divine nature, he learns that the sick man had been there a long time. That this is a divine appointment set by God. And so he asks the man, do you want to be healed? And again, Jesus is full of odd questions, and you can add this to the list of them, right? It seems pretty strange. The sick man is with many sick people in an every area where everyone's looking to be healed. And Jesus is asking, do you want to be better? But if, as we've seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus, though he doesn't ignore the physical, often is pointing to spiritual realities. With Nicodemus, he asks, how can one be born again? And Jesus points him to the new birth that only comes from above by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the woman at the well, he offers living water. And when she asks, where will you get this water? He points to the work of the Spirit that brings eternal satisfaction to us. So one should wonder what he might actually be asking the sick man. You might see his greatest problem is primarily physical, the fact that he cannot walk. Jesus, Jesus might be asking something much more important, more important than his ability to walk. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going down, another steps before me. Isn't it incredible that in front of this man is Jesus, the word in the flesh, who was in the beginning, was with God, is God, who by his hand, everything was created and is sustained. And the man looks right past him and says, no one can bring me to those waters that can bring healing to my life. All he can see is a man, maybe a cheeky one, standing in his way from his healing. Maybe he is even asking for a little help. I, I have no one. Maybe you can help me, wink, wink. Very much believing the only help Jesus can bring to him is by pulling him to the water. Believing that the solution to his ailment was just a few feet away, not the presence of Jesus, but in the magical stirring he believed, like many others, could heal the sin. Again, this is why verse 4, if it was here, would make sense. Because this man believes in the same superstition and magic that many others did at the same time. That the multitudes are waiting there for an impersonal power to work in their life. Convinced 
that the water was infused with this power, but still very much from God, they didn't realize that the God that they were seeking personally was right there for them. <coughs> and I think it's important for us to see that there are, even today, ways that we look at Jesus that sees, sees past him. There are those who believe in baptismal regeneration. It's this idea that the act of baptism saves us from our sins. Do you see how that disconnects us from our salvation? Because baptism actually is a sign, a sign of the work of regeneration, or the giving a new life through the Holy Spirit, a personal work of God, as opposed to this impersonal work that saves you. This work directly connects God and his power to our salvation. But I think we do this in other ways as a church. It's like when we make deals with God. If I will cut out this sin in my life, if I will do these right things, these good things, then I will experience blessing. Then these bad things will stop happening to me. And church, it is not that we won't experience blessing when we walk in righteousness, when we are obedient to God, or even alleviation from suffering if we deal with our sin. But when we attempt to, to, to barger, when we attempt to enter into transaction with God, what we are doing is we're creating a mediator where Christ is to be the only person between us and the Father. For the sick man, the mediator between him and God wasn't Jesus, but the magical water. That would be the way he could find healing from God. For you, it might be good works. It might be cutting sin out. It might be praying hard enough. But Jesus is the only mediator we need between us and God. And through him, we can experience every spiritual blessing. That these other things, walking in obedience, fighting sin, seeking the Lord in prayer, they are not mediators between us and God, but ways we experience the power of Jesus personally in our life. But this man's lack of sight and understanding don't dissuade Jesus' compassion. Though he looks past Jesus, Jesus is still looking right at him. Look at verse 8. Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. In an instant, Jesus has undone 40, nearly 40 years of sickness. In the power of Jesus, there is no wrestling with evil and brokenness. The man didn't need four weeks of rehab to learn how to walk again or strengthen his muscles. No, as quickly as Jesus calls the man to get up, he is able. This is the power of the word. Who made all we see and can't see. Who holds it all together. This is who he is. In an instant, the man is healed. By including the command, pick up your mat. What the sick man is showing is that what used to be his stretcher, what used to be the form of his identity as one who is sick, is no longer. He no longer needs to rest his sick body on the mat. All he needs are the soles for his feet. What once carried the man is now being carried by him. Notice, if you read verse 9, it says, At once the man. He's no longer the man who had been an invalid. He's no longer the sick man, but a new man, made whole by the power of Jesus. But Jesus had the man pick up his mat for another reason. If 
you continue in verse 9, we, we read this. Now that day was the Sabbath. And in verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's actually here where we find the climax and the meaning behind the third sign in the Gospel of John. The real conflict and meaning behind our sign initially seems to be around place and superstition. That Jesus is demonstrating that superstition, mysticism, these impersonal forces are not what we should rely on to seek the power of God. That his power is not separate or impersonal or removed from him. That the transcendent God, meaning above everything, is imminent. He comes near to speak life to us. And though Jesus is in part confronting that thinking, there's more and something bigger he's addressing. Now that, that day was the Sabbath. There was no mistake that Jesus would conduct his healing on the Sabbath. There was no mistake that the healing of the once sick man would then have Jesus call him to pick up his mat and walk. Behind our healing is a direct confrontation by Jesus towards the governing powers. Behind this sign is a declaration that the purpose of Sabbath is to rest in the wholeness of God's creation. Let's think about this a little bit more. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man, It is Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. What the Jews have said here, this accusation, is actually both right and also devastatingly wrong. You see, the Old Testament, it, it did forbid work on the Sabbath. But what is work? The assumption in Scripture seems to be that work refers to your usual job, your usual place of employment. But what we learn is that for the Jews, this wasn't enough. Who felt like there, there needed to be more clarity, more specificity. They needed black and white rules and expectations so that it would be more obvious what it meant to be holy and to not work on the Sabbath. And so they created a system, the Mishnah. And in this system, they divided into 30 classes, uh, 39 classes work and had rules underneath these classes that would bring clarity to what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. And this would include taking or carting anything from one domain to another. Except, of course, in cases of compassion, like carrying a paralytic. The truth, though, is that by actual Old Testament standards, nothing in the scriptures prohibited an innocent activity like carrying your mat. There's nothing you'll find in the Old Testament that says it's sin on the Sabbath to take up your mat and to walk. Well, the man was at fault because he violated later Jewish traditions. These later rules that were added, these minute details and burdensome laws that were added so that people could bring on a false kind of holiness in their life. What is Jesus trying to say then with this sign? With, with that in mind, what is Jesus doing? I think he's trying to confront a couple of things. First, the ease at which we live in superstition. The ease that we will seek power apart 
from a personal God. But even more so, he's challenging the true meaning of Sabbath. A day that we set aside by God that's set in Genesis. Why? Because when God saw his creation, we read in Genesis, saw that everything he had made was good, he rested. And that's the point. That we are to rest in the perfection of what God has created, that we're called to look at the wholeness of creation and rest. Now, living in a sin-filled world does change the ability for us to rest in the, the wholeness of creation because it's tilted. It's broken. It's not what it should be. But Jesus comes to correct that. And in part, that is about bringing wholeness in every way to creation. And this man's healing is a part of that. This man's healing on the Sabbath points to what should be. Resting in the wholeness of creation. Which he's unable to do while he is still sick. So Jesus is confronting a false religion, a system that has taken his people away from the true meaning of Sabbath. And he does this by fulfilling the Sabbath in part through this work. And he will do this in whole when he's placed high on the cross to die for our sins. This sign points to Jesus' purpose to bring Sabbath not simply to this man, but the whole world who is sick just like him. This sign points us to a Jesus who is confronting our false religion that will not bring wholeness and rest. Jesus is asking us, what have you put in his place? What systems have we created? What systems do we live under? Do we live under the same legalism that the Jews did to, in order to try to live holy? That they actually went the opposite way of God's calling? That they found a different source for holiness outside of God? Maybe for some of us, it's not the legalism of righteous works, but it could be politics. Right? That this year, 2024, is not just important to you, but ultimate to you. Does Sabbath, rest, wholeness in this world depend on who will be in office at the end of this year? Jesus, by the power of his words, confronts our false systems, and through the power of his word, he can bring wholeness. He can do what he has done to this man, sick, paralyzed, for almost 40 years. In an instant, he can say, get up, walk. And so Jesus is not just confronting us, he's, conf he's inviting us to hear those words and do the same. As we do the same, he calls us to sin no more. Let's look at verses 11 to 16. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So the Jewish authorities have seen the sick man who's now been made whole and well. He's walking with his mat which is, again, a violation of what they've created, a system they've made. And so they confront him and say, what are you doing? This is wrong. This is a violation of the law. And what feels like an attempt to blame and deflect eyes off him, the man what's sick quickly goes, ah, well, it was Jesus. He made me do it. 
I was just following orders. The guy told me to get up. I could never do it before. I could do it now. I figured I should probably listen to him when he says to walk with the map. And so they ask him, who is that man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? There's a, this is such an unfortunate question. Because the Jews have moved very quickly from the man who just said I was healed to trying to figure out who told you to violate our rules. There's so much irony here. The healing of a man who was sick for almost 40 years is eclipsed in the mind of the Jews by the Sabbath. One day drowns out almost 40 years of suffering. The Jews see a violation. They don't see a miracle. They don't see a man who sits by the pool waiting for magical stirring and question that. But they question it the same day healing occurs. I think the writer John is begging us to ask the right questions about God. Where and when is God expected to work his power? How is God's power connected to who he is? Particularly when we think about the Sabbath. Apparently, there's nothing wrong with believing in a magical healing pool as long as it's just not done on the Sabbath. This is a reminder, I think, also for us that we should be people who are thankful to God. It's very easy, like the Jews do right here, to see God work in our life and then to quickly remember, oh yeah, there's these other problems too God needs you to fix. To see God do something you've prayed for for years and years, for him to answer that prayer faithfully and wonderfully, and to think, okay, well, when's the next thing going to happen? We should guard ourselves to be unlike the Jews and to be a people thankful and grateful, even unlike this man who, in the healing of Jesus, quickly tries to put blame on Jesus so he is not caught in the act of violation. That we be a people who see the grace of God and are thankful for it. But let's continue. Verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man, once sick, unable to tell the Jews who, who it was that healed him in the first place, well, Jesus finds him again. He tells him, You are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's uh, uncovered here for us is that this man, who had been sick for almost 40 years, it seems that that sickness was connected to a sin he had committed. Now, some would argue that Jesus is not claiming that the man's sickness was a result of sin, but Jesus is simply pointing to a reality that is coming if he's not careful to sin no more. But now that God has made him whole physically, he would do well to continue to seek spiritual wholeness in Jesus. They would see this connected to a greater theme in the Gospel of John of repenting from unbelief to avoid the greater judgment to come. And I think that's true. 
And I think there is caution to what can be found in some churches and in some preaching, right? Overemphasis in, in analyzing people's lives, looking at their suffering, and like Job's friends, trying to figure out where did you go wrong? Why are you here? It's because of something you did. We just got to figure it out so you can repent. And it is fair to say that in the Old Testament, we do see this blessing and curse system. That the Israelites, as they walked in obedience, were blessed by God. As they walked in disobedience, saw curses. But I believe we can look at our text and see it for what it is saying without taking it to an extreme in our own lives. Right, just four chapters from here, we will read of the man born blind. And the disciples will interact and say, I wonder what he did to cause this thing to happen to him. But Jesus will correct them, explaining that, that his ailment, his blindness, was not the result of sin in his life, but instead so that God might be displayed in his life. The Bible teaches that God can bring discipline in our life because of sin, that there can be consequences in our life because of sin, but you can also use ailments and hardship for a greater purpose in our life. That sometimes the, the brokenness that we experience is allowed by God for greater purpose, for our good. As we look at the man here who was once sick, the, the text does seem to apply. His sickness was in part due to a sin. Maybe it was similar to those in 1 Corinthians 11 who taking the Lord's Supper wrongly became sick and even had some of them die. We, we don't know why. Perhaps while he was committing a crime a long time ago, he was injured during that as a judgment from God. We simply don't know, but the warning is still the same. See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I do think it's important for us to, at times, consider the consequences of our sin. That this can and should be a deterrent for us. I wonder how helpful it could be for us to, to, to think through the end result of what, we, what going there would do for us, for those we love, for our lives. Sin, in its momentary pleasure, fools us into decades' worth of suffering. And so Jesus' warning should be taken seriously here that there are consequences to the sins that we commit. Ones that maybe we don't feel today or tomorrow, but that will bite us in the end. But the hope is that we can find freedom from that sin and its ultimate consequences. We, like the man sick for 40 years, can be made well, be made whole. Jesus had made the man physically whole, but he promises something much greater in himself. We've already learned of it in Jesus' conversations with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. This wholeness that Jesus offers finds its ultimate expression in salvation. Jesus' death on the cross where he directly deals with the sin that brings sickness to the world. That, that moment where the wrath of God brings judgment to our sin. Jesus, he takes that and dies becoming the right sacrifice for sin. And three days later, his death is defeated. <coughs> Meaning that death, the debt collector of sin, has been destroyed. And in Christ, we are given the power to get up from spiritual death and walk in the newness of life by the power of his name. If you're not a Christian, 
you can be free from the power and pain of sin, from its hold on your life. Because Jesus can make you well. Instantly, once for all, never will you have to prove yourself in Christ. As the man walked at the moment of Christ's words, you will have eternity secured by Jesus and sealed by the Holy Spirit. The rest of this life now in Christ is walking in and towards wholeness by becoming more and more like Jesus, one degree of glory to the next. For us Christians, believers, brothers and sisters, we are now free to choose freedom because he has made you well. And that doesn't mean we're struggling. Sin is pervasive. It's alluring. It's tempting. It's hard to get out of. But Jesus has made you well. And by the power of the Spirit, through the community of the saints, he's called to walk with you. You can enjoy the freedom of wholeness, the freedom to be holy. So, sin no more. That is not simply a command, but a command imbued with the power of God. That by the Spirit who dwells in you, you can hear this, sin no more, and be confident that you can actually live in that. That there is a grace for you to sin no more. To fight against its pervasiveness. Because now we know its consequences. And we can also know that its consequences ultimately can have no power in our life. Now, the pain of it will linger because we are still in a broken world, but we can walk with hope, knowing that we have been given the strength and eternity to look towards to fight sin today. So I want to encourage us as a church, let's not be a people who hoard our sins. Let's not be a people who let the poison of sin continue to work its way into our system. Because it will destroy you. It will hurt you. It will hurt the people who love you and who you love. The call for us is to sin no more. And we're given by the power of the Spirit and the church the means to fight. We're called to wisely confess our sins to one another. To have brothers and sisters in the, the body of Christ who we can walk with, who can be our strength and edify and pull us up when we are down. That we don't have to live the fight alone against sin. Because we've been given the spirit and we've been given one another. And we have this truth. You have been made well. You've been made well by God. By the power of Christ you've been made well. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man once sick shows us something sobering. Even if you encounter the power and presence of Jesus about the work of the Holy Spirit, we will go back to what we know. In the face of the great compassion of Christ, the offer of freedom and wholeness, he goes to the authorities seeking for favor with man instead of freedom in Christ. And the Jews respond similarly. 
seeking to persecute Jesus instead of seeing him for who he is. Jesus' Jewish opponents were putting their human religious traditions above the love and compassion of Christ that their Old Testament would have commanded them to live out, that Jesus walked and exemplified. They put their longing for authority above the authority of the Word who had just spoken life into a man who was sick for almost 40 years. And so the question is, will we be the same? What will we do? When Jesus confronts our superstitions and our false religions, our systems that we put hope into, when he does that with power and authority, will we turn to him or will we go back to what we know? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Gospel of John, for these signs that point us to a Messiah, a Savior, whose identity is of one who's come to bring rescue and salvation to a sinful, broken world. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved us enough to confront us, Lord. That you loved us enough to face us, confront our lies, confront our false superstitions and our false religions, God. That you have loved us enough to do that, to show us your power and authority that we might believe in the name above all names. And we believe in the one who makes it possible for us to be born again, to drink of living water, that we might worship God in spirit and truth, that we might find wholeness on the day of rest that you, God, set aside so long ago. May we be a people who turn to you and enjoy what's given to us in the freedom of Jesus. In your name we pray.